The following is a Westminster Seminary, California, Convocation Lecture. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Just a privilege to get to be here and, and, and glad to be thinking in, uh, about canon. Yesterday, like I said, uh, um, the paper was a little more theoretical, thinking about some of the hermeneutics and um, some of the theological concerns that come along with canon. And uh, what I want to do today, as I mentioned yesterday, I want to do today is think a little more concretely, give some examples uh, of what this might look like. So for those of you who were here yesterday, I began yesterday's paper with the question, Should the books of the Bible be read in isolation from each other, understanding their individual historical situations as the single determinative context of their meaning, or should their collection and placement within the canon constitute a further context uh, in which they ought to be interpreted? That was kind of the initiating question. Now, as we found yesterday, the answer to this question is not to minimize the grammatical historical context. History is necessary. Rather, my point was, is that history alone, or history as the foundation of textual meaning, is not sufficient. A Christian interpretive approach must balance the text's location in history along with the text's location in canon. That's, by and large, theoretically what I was trying to argue yesterday. Today, I want to continue making this argument by considering how the two key elements of canon, the elements of collection and association, so have your ears open to those two words. I'll be using them all through today's lecture, uh, collection and association. Those are fundamental coordinates, we could call them, for canon, collection and association. I want to see how the two key elements of collection and association, first, function at the level of the New Testament, second, at the level of uh, the canonical sub-collection level of the Catholic epistles, and finally, how collection and association make a difference in interpreting James and First Peter together. So notice I'm going from larger to smaller to smaller. New Testament to the Catholic epistles as a sub-collection to First Peter and James as two letters within that sub-collection. What will become clear, uh, as I attempted to argue yesterday, is that uh, the canonical context refuses to pit grammatical historical evidence against theological evidence. So on the handout that you've got there, two more qualifications before I begin. Um, First, I will not present a canonical methodology in this paper. I even got that question yesterday after the first talk. Is this a new method? Is it move over grammatical historical, here comes canonical method? Um, The reason I'm not giving you a canonical method in this paper is because, in essence, the canonical approach is not a new independent method. Um, Rather, it's an an approach. Um, I'm going to argue that we we should continue using the tools of grammatical historical investigation but set grammatical historical investigation within the context of a canonical approach. So this is not a new methodology. Second, I want to make clear from the start that the historical process 
by which the New Testament collection and its canonical associations came into being is of great hermeneutical importance. That is to say, canonical insights shape how we interpret the meaning of the text. So I'm talking about hermeneutical insights here that the canon gives us. All right, so let me try to illustrate this uh, on those three levels. Before focusing, this is the first section of the paper, uh, before I focus on the canonical sub-collection of the Catholic epistles and the more specific relationship between James and 1 Peter, I will start at the broader New Testament level. To do so, let me pose a contrast between two different kinds of canon and how the logic of each shapes interpretive judgments by setting up particular associations between New Testament texts. We could set up this contrast by distinguishing between a scholar's canon and the church's canon. Now, both of those are in scare quotes. I'm making this up a bit, but it's for the purpose of uh, comparison and contrast. Each canon, the scholar's canon and the church's canon, comes complete with uh, separate ordering rubrics for how the collection is formed and how associations are drawn together. So first, let me think about collection. First, there is a different rubric at work in the collection of the scholar's canon over against the church's canon. What books should be collected in the New Testament canon according to the historical, uh, the scholar's historical reconstruction? Uh, this question is way too large to cover with any kind of adequacy here, but for the sake of illustration, the scholar's canon asks, why include the Gospel of John and not the Gospel of Thomas? Perhaps some of the sayings of Jesus, uh, as recorded in Thomas, are more historically accurate than those of John. Based on a particular historical reconstruction of the sayings of Jesus, perhaps Thomas would be in and John would be out. Or, why include the Apocalypse of John and not the Apocalypse of Peter? Or perhaps we should follow the example of Codex Sinaiticus and include the letter of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas. Or follow Codex Alexandrinus and include First and Second Clement after Revelation. The point here is that when guided by historical critical concerns alone, the New Testament canon would look quite different. In this case, there is an underlying logic of collection that is not concerned with authoritative canonical texts, but rather with merely a historical reconstruction of textual production. As I tried to mention in the first lecture, this is the basic view of Adolf von Harnack, namely that later canonical judgments of collection obscure the text's original meaning. In other words, when we privilege a Christian New Testament and only read these 27 books together, um, that obscures the meaning of the texts. And if a historical or scholar's uh, canon is collected together, um, it, it might not be those 27 texts. Other logical concerns, other concerns might collect different texts together. You might have Thomas instead of John. Harnack and others would argue that the church's canon needs to be stripped away. But my concern is when the, the church's canon is stripped away, some other default canon emerges. Either way, you're stuck with a collection. Okay, second, how about association? Uh, second, the scholar's canon suggests a different set of associations between New Testament texts. 
Take the Gospels as an example. Though Matthew is usually listed as the first in the church's canon, the scholar's canon argues for the priority of Mark based on literary dependence and historical composition. The logic that guides this uh, ordering is a historical reconstruction of literary borrowing rather than canonical association perhaps between Matthew and the Old Testament. The history of the scholar's canon tells us something about the history of composition, but the canonical arrangement of the church's canon tells us something about the potential connections between the opening of Matthew's gospel, including Jesus' genealogy, and the end of the Old Testament. How about another example from the gospels? The case of Luke-Acts. Luke was collected by the early church into the fourfold gospel that circulated together as a complex yet coherent fourfold witness to Jesus. In the manuscript evidence, virtually all of the fragments demonstrate that Luke was collected and circulated with the other Gospels and not with Acts. Some scholars have argued that the early church broke the unity of Luke and Acts apart in order to create a fourfold Gospel collection. However, this is not at all what the manuscript evidence reveals. Luke and Acts were never associated in the early manuscripts. As just noted, the manuscript evidence uniformly connects Luke with the other Gospels and connects Acts with the Catholic epistles. Now, uh, I brought show and tell. There's a brand new Greek New Testament. If you want to run out and buy this, this is the Tyndale House uh, Greek New Testament published over at Cambridge. Um, you should look at the order of the New Testament in this Greek New Testament. It is going back to the older Eastern ordering where you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Next is Acts. But what's collected right after Acts are the Catholic epistles. And then after the Catholic epistles are Paul and Revelation. That's actually the ancient Eastern ordering of the New Testament. What, what it's showing is the manuscript evidence or what, what, what this this New Testament is uh, bearing witness to, is that the vast majority of manuscripts collect Acts and the Catholic epistles together. They circulate it together in the same codex. Okay, sorry, that's a little caveat. But the point that I'm trying to make is, as just noted, the manuscript evidence uniformly connects Luke with the other Gospels, and Acts goes along with the Catholic epistles. It is the scholar's canon that realigns Luke with Acts as the first of a two-part history of early Christianity, with the result that the canonical association of Luke with the other Gospels is eclipsed by its historical authorial association with Acts. This again demonstrates a different associational logic at work between the two approaches. Interestingly enough, the early church recognized Luke as the author of both Luke and Acts, yet authorship was not the controlling logic for associating Luke with the other Gospels to form a fourfold Gospel collection. Rather, the logic that recognized and led to the fourfold Gospel collection was the historical and theological witness to the life and message of Jesus, the Gospel itself is the logic guiding the formation of a fourfold gospel collection. How about an example from Paul? As for the Pauline epistles, the scholar's canon marks off the boundary between the authentic epistles and what are called the Deutero-Paulines. Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus are not 
Pauline, their Deuteropauline. This, of course, is a more historical critical division, but the, the, the line, again, is drawn with the aid of the scholar's historical reconstruction of Paul over against any notion of canonical associations gathering together a unified Pauline corpus. Finally, let me offer two illustrations from the Catholic epistles. According to the scholar's canon, the letters of John, Revelation, and the Gospel of John are read together as Johannine literature. According to the logic of the scholar's canon, the associational attraction of historical authorship overcomes traditional canonical associations. It just makes intuitive sense that the Gospel of John, the letters of John, and Revelation should be read together. Why? Because the same person wrote them, right? They, they, they just go together. But again, notice the logic. The early church generally recognized common authorship by John, of Gospel of John, Letters of John, and Revelation, but this did not lead to a common sense association of a Johannine corpus. In fact, there is no plausible evidence in the manuscript tradition that a so-called Johannine corpus ever circulated. And I realize I'm arguing against um, uh, Charles Hill here, uh, who argues that there was, in fact, a, a Johannine uh, corpus. Uh, but, but I think that's a very tenuous argument to make. There's no manuscript evidence that shows those letters, or sorry, those Johannine uh, texts ever circulated together. In fact, on the other hand, we have massive evidence that the letters of John were collected with the Catholic epistles and associated with those texts in the manuscripts. Rather, according to the logic of the gospel, John was associated with other gospels on one hand, and on the other hand, Revelation was collected at the end of the New Testament as a kind of climax to the canon, rather than a mere member of the Johannine corpus. And in the end, the letters of John, being separated from the gospel and Revelation, found a rich set of associations with other Catholic epistles. Perhaps the witness of the pillar apostles in Jerusalem reinforced the association between James, Peter, and John in the Catholic epistles, an association that Paul refers to in Galatians 2.9. How about another example, my last one, from the Catholic epistles? This last example from the Catholic epistles is the case of 2 Peter and Jude, two texts I hope you've heard of. I hope you read them. <laughs> they uh, aren't paid attention to very often. Scholars treat 2 Peter as if it were 2 Jude because of the literary borrowing between the two. The historical reconstruction understands that the author of 2 Peter borrowed heavily from Jude's letter and that this fact of literary borrowing outweighs the traditional association or the canonical association between 1 and 2 Peter. As evidence of the influence of the scholar's canon at this point, go into your library and find a commentary on Jude. What other text will be in that commentary? Second Peter. Uh, Eve, so, so notice how influential this association is. Almost every commentary you pick up will have Second and Peter Jude together. Why? Because of a historical literary connection. Uh, even in commentaries that have first, second, Peter and Jude in them, like the excellent commentary by Tom Schreiner in the NAC series. Even in that commentary, the associations between 2 Peter and Jude are highlighted to the expense of the association between 1 and 2 Peter. 
It's interesting to note that whereas the author of 2 Peter makes no attempt to hide his dependence on Jude, he likewise makes no effort whatsoever to highlight any connection with Jude. Read 2 Peter and you will find he makes no reference to Jude. He's not trying to link his letter to Jude, though he's not trying to hide how similar those two texts are. Rather, the author of 2 Peter works hard to associate his letter with that of 1 Peter. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder. 2 Peter 3.1 One could argue, therefore, that the scholarly association of 2 Peter and Jude actually ignores the plain-sense reading of 2 Peter. The interpreter actually has to argue against the clear association in the text in order to break the connection between 1 and 2 Peter. The scholar's canon is deeply suspicious of 2 Peter's attempt to associate itself with 1 Peter and resists seeing them as a developing uh, set of ideas uh, by a, a, a common author. My hypothetical contrast between the scholar's canon and the church's canon presses the following question. Which collection and which set of associations should we attend to when we interpret the New Testament? You're going to follow one set of associations or the other. There's no, you can't opt out of this choice. Now, I want to be clear. I am not arguing that we should never analyze Luke and Acts together or that we should never consider the stylistic similarities between the Johannine texts. These are legitimate exegetical exercises that bear interpretive fruit. However, what I am suggesting is that because interpretation is always guided by notions of collection and association, the interpreter must become aware of the underlying logic of such decisions. I am arguing that whereas historical associations are important and useful, scholars canon, canonical collection of the New Testament and the associations it generates should take precedence. Canonical concerns of collection and association should guide exegesis and interpretation for two reasons. Because the canonical approach can balance historical and theological concerns better than grammatical historical alone. That's my argument from yesterday. And because otherwise the default logic of the scholar's canon will guide our interpretive decisions and we will become tone deaf to the critical theological historical context of canon. Evangelicals and confessional interpreters already privilege a New Testament collection. Why not the associations that are generated by that collection? Okay, two, sub-collection of Catholic epistles. This is the second part of the, uh, of the paper. With the canonical concern for collection and association at the New Testament level in mind, let me drill down to the Catholic epistles more specifically and illustrate further this tone deafness to canon. Rarely, if ever, are the Catholic epistles treated as a coherent canonical group in modern scholarship. Whether read by secular or Christian scholars, often these letters are described as the non-Pauline epistles. I just have to choke when I say that. I love Paul, people, but the Catholic epistles aren't the non-Paulines. They're described as the non-Pauline epistles, or they're lumped together as concluding letters, or latter New Testament, or the end of the New Testament. These are literally all phrases describing these letters in publications. As in the previous section on, on the New Testament, 
we noted, there, there is a question over the actual collection of texts in the New Testament, but there's also an actual uh, question about the collection of texts within the Catholic epistles. What letters belong to this so-called collection? Uh, I, I, I could test you and have you shout out, what, what are the letters in the Catholic epistles? Now, don't do that, but I bet we would get different answers. These letters are variously counted as nine, Hebrews through Revelation. Uh, sometimes you have classes on Hebrews through Revelation. Or perhaps the Catholic epistles are numbered as six, Hebrews through Revelation, except omitting the letters of John. Why? Because they go with the Johannine literature. Or sometimes six, Hebrews through, uh, I'm sorry, or, or, or more often, sorry, more often they are grouped together as a list of eight, Hebrews through Jude. This last association is so common that when colleges and seminaries do offer classes <coughs> choke on non-Pauline texts, <laughs> it is usually a class focusing on Hebrews through Jude, treating Hebrews as a general letter. I don't want to be unkind, but even a recent textbook taking up the Catholic epistles from a redemptive historical perspective uh, gives little to no attention on the canonical collection. In fact, it even starts its analysis with 1 Peter instead of James, um, just showing a tone deafness to any kind of canonical association or collection uh, there. Uh, along with the confusion regarding the content of the Catholic uh, uh, epistle collection, there is confusion over the very meaning of the term Catholic in the phrase Catholic epistles. The default position is that Catholic epistle and general letter are interchangeable because Catholic is merely a genre distinction. Catholic letters are letters written to non-specific or general audiences. However, this is very misleading. Jude is written to address a very specific situation, so much so that Richard Bauckham argues that it is not a general letter at all. Likewise, uh, though written to a group of affiliated churches, 1 John is also addressing a very specific set of circumstances affecting specific communities. It also might not be a general letter. Second and third John, clearly not general letters. So if a Catholic epistle is just a genre distinction, then Jude and the letters of John are out, and Hebrews is probably in. But I disagree with this completely. Rather than a genre category, the term Catholic is not an adjective, but a proper noun. Catholic epistle is a title given to a specific canonical collection of New Testament texts. And this can be demonstrated in the history of the reception. Um, a little more show and tell. Uh, this is a book I've just written about this topic, uh, thinking about the Catholic epistles as a canonical collection. And uh, one line of evidence is to see how early church fathers used the term Catholic when describing epistles. Um, and there is evidence that it's being used as a proper designation, a proper noun, to describe a specific discrete set of texts instead of merely letters to general audiences. So according to the church's canon, there is a specific collection of texts that function authoritatively for the church. This much I take as uncontroversial in the current context. The New Testament is a specific 27 texts that we read exclusively together. But more than this, the church's canon suggests particular associations between texts and groups of texts which bear upon their meaning. 
These particular associations can be seen in the final shape of the New Testament um, and at the same time we can historically describe some of how the final shape of the New Testament came to be. I want to argue that the process by which New Testament, the New Testament was collected and those associations inside that New Testament came about is of great importance both historically and hermeneutically. Especially that hermeneutical importance I hope to demonstrate with the relationship between uh, James and 1 Peter. But, but as I'm getting there, let me try to give some evidence. Um, as the individual texts of the New Testament were composed by their original authors for their discrete audiences and situations, what happened almost immediately is that these texts were collected together. The sharing and circulation of early Christian letters is clear as Paul tells the Colossian church, after this letter has been read in your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that all, you also read the, the letter from, the, from Laodicea. Now, of course, this is not evidence um, that the lost letter of the Laodiceans is canonical, but rather that the original authors intended for their writings to be circulated and to be read among wider audiences than their original audience in the text. Furthermore, Peter notes, and I have this on your handout, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Already at the time that 2 Peter was written, a collection of Paul's letters was circulating. They were being read by communities who were not the original recipients, and it seems that these letters were considered scripture. Some have even argued that Paul himself was responsible for the early collection of some of his letters. Fascinating thesis forwarded by a guy named David Trobisch. We can document, so what I'm trying to say here is, look, the New Testament has evidence itself of collection, association, and circulation. Uh, we can document the further collection and association of groups of New Testament texts beyond the explicit New Testament evidence. Here we should understand this development of the New Testament as a collection of collections. In other words, it was not the case that individual books came into the New Testament canon on their own. The evidence rather indicates that groups of books, canonical sub-collections, if you will, came into the New Testament together. Evidence from patristic citation and manuscript tradition indicate that the four Gospels and the Pauline corpus were received and recognized as distinct collections early in the canonical process. In fact, the manuscript evidence strongly suggests a fourfold Gospel collection originating as early, uh, as early as the first part of the second century. Stanley Porter himself notes, there appears to be a strong line of continuity from the second century to the fourth, with our four canonical gospels emerging as a whole together out of the second century, out of the early second century. Furthermore, with respect to the Pauline corpus, Porter notes, there is strong evidence that a collection of at least 13 Pauline epistles was circulating by 200 CE at the latest. In the early apostolic era, the four Gospels and the Pauline Corpus were collected into subgroups and circulated authoritatively among Christian communities. Uh, 
Thus, the development of the New Testament canon proceeded by means of formation of sub-collections, which were subsequently accepted into the New Testament as a whole. Though the canonical process seems to be clearer for the Gospels and Pauline corpus, the evidence for the early history of the Catholic Epistles collection is admittedly much less clear because there just isn't the same kind of evidence. Patristic comments regarding the Catholic epistles indicate that, except for James, 1 Peter, and 1 John, the Catholic epistles were not widely known in the churches throughout the 2nd century, and at times they were variously disputed even into the 4th and 5th centuries. The manuscript evidence indicates that the Catholic epistles eventually did enter the New Testament as a collection, yet after a time of circulating individually and in smaller groups. In fact, P72, an early papyrus manuscript, has First and Second Peter and James together. So you have a sub-sub-collection of the Catholic epistles circulating together early on. Harry Gamble argues, the history of the Catholic epistles holds significance for larger conceptions about the history of the canon. Since they found inclusion in the canon not individually, but precisely as a group, since that collection did not take shape until late in the third century at the earliest, now I have a problem with that phrase, I'll come back to that, and since that collections came to this collection, the collection of the Catholic epistles, came to constitute, along with the Gospels and the Pauline letters, one of the three major subunits of the canon. It is very difficult, therefore, to speak of a New Testament canon prior to the fourth century. Okay, that's all Harry Gamble. Now, I very much disagree with two of Gamble's points. First, I believe it's historically plausible that the Catholic Epistle Collection took shape much earlier, um, earlier than the third century, uh, perhaps somewhere, uh, uh, somewhere at the very end of the second century uh, or into the early third. Second, I completely disagree with his assessment that we cannot speak of a New Testament canon before the 4th century. He is forced to argue this because of how he defines canon. For Harry Gamble, canon means a fixed list. And if canon is only a fixed list, we can only talk about a canon in the 4th century or later when all of the 27 texts are listed. But I think canon is much more than just a fixed list. It's also a rule of faith. And we can actually see the sub canonical subgroupings, Gospels, Paul's letters, they're circulating as authoritative texts. They're circulating as canon way before the time uh, that Gamble is talking about. Um, but Gamble's other observations about the Catholic epistles are helpful, namely that they came into the New Testament canon as a collection and that the Catholic epistles constitute one of the three major subunits of the New Testament canon. Now, much more could be said about the historical process by which the New Testament canon developed, and more specifically, how the seven Catholic epistles formed as a canonical subgroup within the New Testament. Again, I've written about that in, in, in my book. Uh, but here, let me push on. Uh, but to reinforce the central point of my paper, we must ask, what difference do canonical collection and association make in exegesis? As we've seen so far, the larger context of the New Testament collection now get this, hear this carefully. The larger New Testament collection, right, 27 books, that has to provide the boundaries within which we see associations. That's my whole point of contrasting a scholar's canon to a church's canon. Let's let the canon itself, the boundaries of a canonical New Testament, 
that collection should drive or provide boundaries for the kinds of associations we might see. These associations then must guide exegetical investigation. Furthermore, the specific associations within the Catholic Epistle Collection should guide our exegesis of James and 1 Peter as diaspora letters. That's the example now I turn to here in the third part of my paper. When we turn to James and 1 Peter as diaspora letters, what do we consider first? Do we consider historical or canonical context? Now I'm going to pose that and I'm totally going to dodge it <laughs> because I'm not proposing a new methodology. So what you're going to get is historical and canonical insights mixed together here in the last part of the paper. Okay, but let me try to be clear about what I'm doing. For example, first, it is important uh, or it is an important grammatical historical detail to consider uh, the genre background of what a diaspora letter is in the Hellenistic, uh, in Hellenistic Judaism. These letters were official letters sent from Jerusalem to diaspora communities in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, Egypt, 2 Maccabees 1, or to Aristobulus and the rest of the Jews in Egypt, 2 Maccabees uh, chapter 2, or from Barak to the nine and a half tribes which were across the river, Second Apocalypse of Barak. Furthermore, there are references to messengers going from the temple authorities in Jerusalem to places like Syria regarding the correct dates for the festivals. That's in some of the rabbinic literature. Such diaspora letters, so notice I'm in the historical cultural context of what a diaspora letter is. Such diaspora letters were specifically directed to exiled communities seeking to motivate them to remain faithful in their diaspora context in light of future hope of their restoration. This could be a potentially meaningful context in which to understand both James and 1 Peter. They're both described as letters to the diaspora. So keep this in mind as we move forward. But, but the question is how determinative should such a background context be for understanding James and 1 Peter together? Now, something that would be striking even to the earliest readers who would have read James and 1 Peter as the first two letters of a collection is the significant number of parallels between the two texts. Now, I probably went a little overboard on your, out, uh, on your handout there, but I've listed the 13 similar uh, themes and vocabulary that stand between 1 Peter and James. This is a remarkable set of common uh, things. Let me read them briefly. Both letters are addressed to diaspora audiences, both command rejoicing in suffering and the proving of faith in perfection. Both allude to Isaiah 40, 6-8. Both use birth through the divine word imagery. Both command the ridding of the self of evil. Both quote from and give interpretation of Leviticus 19. Both make the call to good conduct. They both warn about desires at war within the self. They both quote the Septuagint version of Proverbs 3.34. They both give the command to resist the devil right after the citation of that proverb. They both promise that God will exalt those who humble themselves. And finally, they both quote the same portion of Proverbs 10.12. And I've given you the Greek phrases that actually are common phrases between the two as well. This is a remarkable set of parallels. But what is remarkable even further uh, is that this list of similarities and parallels agree in sequence. They come in the same order. 
between James and 1 Peter. When comparing the order of these parallels, there are only three instances when material in James is only one position out of sequence from that of 1 Peter. This is such a striking degree of similarity that Dale Allison, in his recent commentary, argues that it must be indication of literary dependence. James or 1 Peter is using each other. Now, whether or not this indicates literary dependence, surely the first readers and subsequent compilers within the canonical process, compilers of the New Testament, that is, would have seen these textual similarities as a basis for recognizing their association within an emerging collection of Catholic epistles. Let me move on to the specific parallel of diaspora. Of course, the first of these many parallels is their address to those in the diaspora. The term diaspora only appears three times in the New Testament, John 7.35, uh, James 1.1, and 1 Peter 1.1. Whereas its use in John 7.35 clearly refers to the geographic area in which Jews have been scattered, the typical meaning of the word diaspora, there's been much more discussion regarding what the term refers to in the opening of James and 1 Peter. It is significant to note that among all the new letters in the New Testament, it is only James and 1 Peter where the audience is described as in diaspora. Because of this similarity, Kerry Newman has argued that 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, binds together the message of Peter and James. Both letters are addressed to the faithful in the diaspora. This is helpful, but he does not elaborate on how exactly the term binds the two letters together. I agree with Newman. Um, uh, that the term connects the two letters, yet what I want to try to argue is how this term draws the two together. Uh, first, though, we might consider in context how James and 1 Peter uses the term in slightly different ways. Right? Uh, the, the, the central point of difference is that after James describes his audience as the 12 tribes in the diaspora in the opening of his letter, he leaves this distinction or this designation aside for the rest of his writing. So James talks about his audience as diaspora, but then doesn't develop that idea at all through the rest of the letter. He leaves it. On the other hand, 1 Peter not only addresses his audience as being of the diaspora in the letter opening, but he continues to narrate the audience's identity in exilic terms. Richard Bauckham has noted the difference between the usage of diaspora in James and 1 Peter can be seen from the fact that, whereas in James the word is used to identify the addressees, but then plays scarcely any further part in the argument of his letter, in 1 Peter the diaspora belongs to a, the, a potent theological metaphorical complex which is developed through the letter as a way of interpreting Christian existence in pagan society. Considering this difference, let's make some more specific observations about the context of Diaspora in James and then in 1 Peter. James is a circular letter from James, the Lord's brother, leader of the Jerusalem church, to the 12 tribes in the Diaspora. Richard Bauckham argues that both 12 tribes and Diaspora are literal references to Jews living outside their homeland. However, it doesn't take us very long to realize that at the time of writing, James could not have been writing to all the 12 tribes. Why? Well, 10 of them had been obliterated by the invasion of the northern of Israel. Right? At the time of writing, there are no 10 tribes uh, in the north. Yet, in this context, Bauckham argues, reference to all 12 tribes is not purely ideal 
but indicates that the letter is intended for the whole diaspora, including not only the Western, but also the Eastern diaspora, where descendants of the exiles of the Northern tribes still formed communities known and in communication with the rest of the Jewish world. That is, though the 12 tribes in the diaspora refer to ethnic Jews living outside of the land of Israel, stressing geography, it does not limit the fact that the phrase still refers to more broadly the whole of the diaspora. Let me keep developing this. Furthermore, James clearly does not write to all Jews in the diaspora without distinction because James both writes as the leader of this movement and because the letter is not designed to convert his readers to faith in Jesus the Messiah, but takes for granted that his readers share this faith, it is clear that James writes to Jewish followers of Jesus. That's a very specific kind of uh, Jewish person, right? Jewish followers of Jesus. So James is clearly written to a Christian audience. However, the fact that the letter opening does not, like almost every other New Testament letter, indicate it is specifically for a Christian audience, Richard Bauckham argues that this is probably indicative of the way James views the early Christian movement. He does not see the early Christian movement as a, as a specific sect distinguished from other Jews, but as the nucleus of the messianic renewal of the people of Israel, which is underway and which would come to include all of Israel. Again, although the phrase 12 tribes in the diaspora most certainly refers to the tribal membership and geographical context of his Jewish Christian readers, at the same time, this phrase invokes the lively first century Jewish hope of the return of the exiles of all 12 tribes to the land of Israel. It incorporates the audience into the messianic program of redemption, which Jesus himself had initiated by appointing 12 apostles. That is not a mistake. The, the number 12 itself fans into flame a Jewish first century hope of restoration. And in addition to this, I might add, this messianic renewal could include Gentiles as members of the people of God, as the example of Rahab demonstrates in James chapter 2. James's understanding of the people of God, even as a diaspora people, does not exclude Gentiles, but like Jesus' own mission, uh, it is still focused on the messianic renewal of Israel as the necessary first stage in the messianic redemption of the world. Proof for this seems clear in James chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, By his own choice he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What a strange phrase, first fruits of his creatures. Those Jewish followers of Jesus who received new birth as children of God by the word of truth constituted renewed Israel, whom James calls a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Bacham argues that these renewed Jewish followers of Jesus are the first sheaf of the eschatological harvest offered to God in thankful assurance of the full harvest to come. That's why it's first fruits. It's anticipating uh, renewal of all peoples. Therefore, the new birth of Jewish followers of Jesus is the representative beginning of God's new creation of all things. Thus, James addresses the 12 tribes, but he does so with the consciousness uh, he shares with all other Christians that God's purposes now being fulfilled through Jesus the Messiah has a universal goal. 
So for James, diaspora is, is a geographical distinction with reference to the center, land and temple, which is the Jewish understanding of diaspora. Yet at the same time, the Jewish Christians to whom James writes are the messianically renewed Israel, the harbinger of the messianic redemption of the world. I'm excited about that. <laughs> the context of 1 Peter's use of diaspora is somewhat different from James. For First Peter's audience, their identity as the people of God in diaspora was a new identity that they had been given. And much of First Peter is devoted to expanding this identity and its implications for his readers. Whereas the diaspora in James is a presupposed fact of Jewish life, in First Peter, the diaspora is a potent theological interpretation of the facts of Gentile Christian existence. Peter undoubtedly addresses his readers as converts from a pagan life in society, and, as with James, the entire question of relations between Jews and Gentile Christians is absent from First Peter. This is an interesting contextual similarity between the two letters. Neither is concerned to draw distinctions between Jews and Gentile followers of Jesus on the lines of purity or food laws. Neither mention circumcision or table fellowship, which is interesting in light of Peter's experience in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, if you remember that episode. Throughout the letter, Peter consistently uses the term the Gentiles to refer to non-Christian outsiders. Bauckham notes that this is a vision of God's people in which Jews simply have dropped out of the picture altogether and in which the new people of God are distinguished from Gentiles, not as Jews, but as Christians. Christians are distinguished from Gentiles, yet in terms borrowed from those which diaspora Jews would have found themselves. How fascinating is that? However, the image of diaspora used to describe Gentile Christians should not be understood as transference of Jewish identity to the church. Although a degree of continuity between the people of God in the first covenant is presumed, Bauckham notes it is certainly not the emphasis of 1 Peter. Rather, Peter stresses the new identity of his readers as though those who once were not a people but now have been constituted as God's people by the event of the eschatological exodus, the very eschatological people of God whom the prophets foresaw. And though the new identity of Peter's renewed audience is articulated by the titles and descriptions drawn from the prophetic accounts of the eschatological people of God in the Old Testament, their identity does not consist primarily in direct continuity with the people of the first covenant, but rather in their own election, calling, constitution, destiny, and prospective inheritance as the eschatological people of God. Throughout First Peter, the language of diaspora and exile are given positive association. Peter describes his readers as those who have experienced a new exodus where God has made those previously not a people his own elect people. The image of new birth in 1 Peter 1.3 likely also connects to the prophecy of Hosea where those previously not God's people become, quote, children of the living God, Hosea 1.10. So when 1 Peter describes his readers as exiles in the diaspora, it is in reference to a temporary diaspora. 
As the eschatological people of God, by means of new exodus, Peter's readers are still living as exiles among Gentiles. Rather than a geographical diaspora like James, 1 Peter's audience is in a temporal diaspora, living in the time between, on the one hand, their present election and calling as God's people, and on the other, their future entering into their inheritance and the glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. It is within this in-between time, this diaspora, that Peter's audience must live out their new identity as God's eschatological and holy people. While appreciating the different ways in which James in 1 Peter uses diaspora, Bauckham himself notes how the term diaspora draws James and 1 Peter together, specifically noting the interpretive significance of reading the two letters in canonical succession. Bauckham quote, if we, read the canon, uh, sorry, if we read the Catholic epistles in the order in which at an early date they came to be associated in their canonical order with James in first place and first Peter immediately following, then we first read a letter addressed only to Jewish Christians as the 12 tribes in the diaspora and then a letter apparently addressed only to Gentile Christians as exiles of the diaspora to whom defining descriptions of Israel as God's people have been applied. One effect of reading James and 1 Peter in their canonical context, Bauckham notes, is to portray the inclusion of Gentiles into the eschatological people of God, which retains through its Jewish Christian membership, its continuity with Israel, and yet is also open to the inclusion of those who had not hitherto been God's people. Whereas James focuses on renewed Israel in his letter, he clearly understands the messianic renewal of Israel as the necessary first step in the messianic redemption of the world. And this understanding coheres all the more powerfully when reading James alongside 1 Peter, who portrays his Gentile audience as the eschatological people of God marked out with the very prophetic labels first announced over Israel. Bauckham continues by noting that the inclusion of Gentiles in the eschatological people of God is thus portrayed in the Catholic letters in their own way, just as clearly as in the Pauline corpus. Yay! Stands all up alongside Paul, not get squashed by Paul. Sorry, okay, that was totally my caveat. In the the Catholic letters, in their own way, uh, the uh, Gentiles as the eschatological people of God is thus portrayed in the Catholic letters in their own way, just as clearly as in the Pauline corpus, reminding us that this is not confined to the Pauline mission, but also happened, for example, in the church at Rome, quite independently of Paul, but in relationship with the mother church in Jerusalem. The sequence and relationship of James in 1 Peter portrays the priority of Israel, Gentile Christian indebtedness to Jewish believers, and also the full inclusion of Gentiles in the people of God. All that's Bauckham. But I love it that he said the sequence and relationship between James and 1 Peter helps us see this. It's exactly what I'm trying to argue with collection and association. As Bauckham notes here, it is precisely as we interpret the Catholic epistles in their canonical context that we see Gentiles included into the eschatological people of God just as clearly as we do in the Pauline letters. Finally, Bauckham concludes, and this is on your handout, I think, Gentile Christians finding themselves addressed as exiles of diaspora are encouraged to find James's letter to the, tri- the 12 tribes in the diaspora also addressed to them by virtue of their grafting into the root of Israel. It is theirs too 
not as a Gentile appropriation of Jewish inheritance, but as the root into which they have been grafted, their own Gentile inheritance as God's eschatological people. Now, Christians have always read James as Christian scripture, even though it's historically only addressed to Jews. But this canonical context in the Catholic epistle collection gives both historical and theological reasons for reading James as Christian scripture. A further canonical insight that surfaces when we draw uh, is drawing James' geographical understanding of diaspora together with 1 Peter's temporal understanding. Writing to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, James most certainly refers to the geographical diaspora of his Jewish Christian readers. But as, ar- but as argued above, he understands the messianic renewal of Israel as the necessary first step in the messianic redemption of the world. And it is through the people geographically removed from their home that God indicates his redeeming work. Furthermore, people, Peter argued that God uses the witness of his Gentile audience experiencing a, te- a temporal diaspora, living in the in-between time of exile now in full inheritance at the coming of Christ. Peter is saying God is using his readers' temporal diaspora to convict the world. Perhaps both notions of diaspora, both geographical and temporal, are part of the experience of the eschatological people of God as they witness and wait patiently for God's restoration of all things. Conclusion. I hope in these two papers to have at least nudged you toward considering the historical and theological implications of canon more often in your exegesis and interpretation of Scripture. Again, I'm not arguing that we we must abandon our historical Uh, our grammatical historical toolkit, and I'm not necessarily offering a new hermeneutical method to adopt. Rather, I hope to have demonstrated the need to build a canonical historical toolkit alongside our grammatical historical tools, and that we must become more sensitive to the theological implications of the initial recontextualization of these biblical texts within the canon if we're to read it as Christian scripture. Thank you very much. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.